1: Last night, as I was preparing for the show, I see that the Phoenix Suns are up by 20 points. And I'm thinking, you know what? I can work on some other things for this show now because I've seen what I need to see. And I get a text message from somebody saying, what the heck happened? So I'm going to ask you, what the heck happened in that game for the Phoenix Suns to collapse and blow a 20-point third-quarter lead? You're listening to the All-City, All-NBA show with Adam Marez and Tim Legler. What is up everybody? And welcome to the first edition of the All-City, All-NBA show presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. I'm your host, Adam Marez, and I'm very proud to be joined by my co-host. You've seen him for 23 years at ESPN talking with Scott Van Pelt, talking all over the place, breaking down X's and O's as well as anybody in the game. It is, of course, legs, Tim Legler. Tim, I'm excited. Adam, I am so psyched to
0: be doing this with somebody that loves hoops as much as I do, right? And uh, <laughs> so we are we are a place. If you want to talk hoops, man, you love the game and you want to find out what's going on around the league, what you just watched, what you're going to watch, what's going on with teams, players, this is going to be the place. So I, I am so excited to be on with you and, and to get this thing kicked off. I always
1: laugh because hoop heads can, you could recognize a hoop head quickly, you know, somebody who really likes the game and is passionate about it. And, you know, we're just getting to know each other, you and I, Tim, but in our conversations we have to limit ourselves because we just start talking basketball and one thing becomes the next. And the next thing, you know, we're on seven different tangents. And to me, That's why I know this show is going to be great. That's why I know people are going to connect with it. We're both so passionate about this game and, and every aspect of the actual basketball part of the game. One thing that is I've learned in my years
0: in in media, uh, you cannot be fraudulent in that it shows if you're not watching. And the reason I think that you and I just in these early conversations we've had leading up to this and kind of getting to know each other, it's pretty obvious we're watching. We're watching every single night. We're, we're watching and we're paying attention. And it's because we love it so much. And the passion that we have for it hopefully comes through to every
1: single person that watches us. There's no doubt about that one. Um, and just some housekeeping, we're going to be doing this show four times a week, hour-long show, four times a week. And the emphasis is going to be on breaking down the games, the games that happen and not just oh here's the numbers here's the, the the narratives or what have you but we want to get into the details of the game and try to tell you hey here's some insight that you know Legler saw and and he's sharing the details with you we're also going to be doing player deep dives you know scouting reports on players and really breaking down the parts of their game. Uh, that they need to work on, the parts of their game that make them impactful, as well as deep dives on teams. and and I'm looking forward to all of that. looking at a team, what does their roster need? What is the central question that they're facing going into a year? So that's gonna be the show, and it's gonna be four times a week. so you're gonna have no shortage of of the analysis that you crave on these types of things. But to get a start, I can tell you that, but I'd rather show the audience and and I want to start by asking you this simple question. like you've been in the business now for over two decades analyzing basketball. What is it that makes you so passionate about it? What is it that you love about analyzing the game of basketball? Well, I think for me, fortunately, I've been I've been blessed
0: to be able to, to continue to stay involved with the league. You know, after after playing, this has become this has become the so uh, central focal point of my life since I was yeah. 14 years old. I mean, that's really when it all began for me—an obsession with the game. You know, a lot of guys, you get done playing after your career is over, whenever that is—high school, college, pros, whatever it may be. And you know a lot of guys aren't able to stay connected to the game. So just the fact that I am able to continue to be important or relevant as, in terms of the NBA matters. But but I just think it's the greatest game in the world, Adam. I mean I know I'm biased because it's it's basically I always joke with people. You know it put braces on my kids' mouths, right? It paid for my mortgage, right? right. So I'm a little bit biased yeah. about the game. Sure. But it's not it's not just the the benefits I've gotten from it. It's I genuinely believe it's the most beautiful sport in the world because it, it combines that combination of individual um, artistry, right, and expression in a team concept. And it's a very difficult thing to pull off, whether you're a coach trying to get guys to do it, whether you're you know players trying to mesh with each other. It's a very difficult thing to do because every time you catch it, you've got to decide what you're going to do next um, and make that look beautiful. And I think when basketball is played the right way, the
1: way I believe it should be played, Um, it's the most beautiful sport there is to watch. Yeah, I love that. And one of the things you said was, you know, the different influences and artistry to the game. I I love this. If I say a a New York City point guard, you understand what that means. It has a very specific, the culture and, and history of New York influences the style of Basketball. I can tell you the same thing about, you know, I, I I we here in Denver obviously have Jokic. I've learned a lot about the Serbian history in basketball. There's a Serbian school of basketball, and I love that because there's all these different layers that play into uh what makes a type of player, what what they molded themselves into and what types of things they were influenced by. But I'll tell you why I love analyzing the game of basketball. You know, I had a nice high school career, not to You obviously have had a great career. I had a nice high school career. When I got done with high school, I thought I knew a lot about basketball. I went on to college and I learned I didn't know anything about basketball. This is there was so much more to learn. I graduate college and I think now I know basketball. I went into coaching, realized there was a whole lot more to basketball that I didn't know. Then I go into analyzing. This is my 10th year now and uh, being an NBA analyst. And every day I wake up and there's something new about basketball that I didn't know the day before. And there's some new thread to pull on or something new to think about. And that's what I love about analyzing basketball is as much as I feel like I know the game, there's so much more to learn. And I think myself and, and people listening to the show are excited to tune in every day and learn from you and to hear something new about the game from you. Well, I can tell you right now, my goal
0: uh, since I started in this industry and it will be every single day we do this my goal is to hopefully say something to the people that are listening that's maybe told in a different way than they've heard anywhere else. And it's maybe going to give a little bit of a nuance to yeah. the game they watched last night, or they follow a team and tell me about some of the guys on my team and why they have a problem with this. Or what do you think about this guy? Why is he having success and why? So and I'm not just going to sit down and hopefully give you cookie cutter things. I'm going to give you things that are a little bit more nuanced about the game. And it might be, you know, sometimes you'll watch a game, Adam, and you'll know, obviously, that right. that 8-2 run at the end of the game really mattered, right? Because it was the closing finish. But what about what about this sequence in this in a six-minute stretch in the third quarter that I thought was absolutely critical to the game? um, I, I look for things like that when I watch the games and hopefully we're going to be doing some of that here and to give you a chance to really think about what you watched last night. And wow, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that. And that's, that's my goal, you know? And I think the conversation with you and the, and the ones we've had leading up to this lets me know that it's going to be some awesome back and forth and hopefully highly educational. We're not going to agree on
1: everything and that's going to be fine too. Yeah. So I you're one of the best analysts in the game but are you still learning the game? Do you, are there still moments where you see something where you go, wow, I didn't think the game could be played like that, or I didn't know a team could do this. And, and you get excitement from seeing something new. There's no question. And, and look, you talk about, you know, how the game
0: has changed. You know, I think, you know, I fell in love with the game in the eighties, high school and college career. Yeah. Right, That's really when, when I fell in love with it. Nineties was my career two plus decades now at ESPN and just look at what we're watching every night and compare that to those earlier decades when I either fell in love with the game or when I played in the NBA, it doesn't look anything like that anymore. So what happens is you have to have your mind open to there being different ways of doing things. And the other thing that's been good for me, I've been blessed to be around some of the greatest basketball minds there are. So just in having, whether it's, you're just having conversations with them, you're watching a game with them. You know, I'm at a, I'm at a camp watching some elite players right, and, and just talking through what they're doing, how they get better, the, the training that they have available to them. Now, there's so many different things and aspects and components to the game than anything that I saw when I played it. You always have to have your mind open to understanding, yeah. hey, there, there may be a better way to do some things than you thought, and you've got to be willing to embrace that. But having said that, there's going to be plenty of things we're going to talk about that I think aren't as good, and right. I don't mind going down that road either. So it's no, there's no doubt. It's you know the league has so many storylines now, so many great players. Um, it's fascinating. Offseason is as good as the regular season a lot of times, and uh, right now, beginning of the season is so exciting. New faces, new places, new coaches, rookies, all of that. Love diving in to see
1: what this looks like at the start of the year. Well, that's another thing I love about the game is there's so many parallels to all aspects of life, and and one of those that you just brought up, there's this nice. Tension. I I should say at times it's nice. At times it's terrible. This tension between the old guard and the current era. And I think when I look at basketball, I always think the basketball players today are pushing the game into new frontiers and they're standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before them, taking from them and, and pushing the game to new limits. But as much as they're exploring new areas, there's also lessons being lost from decades past and generations past. And that's part of the game evolves. And there is, in my opinion, and maybe I'm curious to hear if you agree or disagree, a perfecting of the game or an improvement of the game. But just as there is an improvement in one aspect, there is also a a loss in another aspect that it's like, hey, we're also learning, losing some of these things that really made the game interesting and made players uh, impactful.
0: That's perfectly stated because I think the thing that I open my eyes to and I'm very envious of, the modern player the ways that they get better in the offseason, right? The things right. available to them, right? You think about when I was grinding it out, trying to get to the league and even get a scholarship first before that, you know, you're sitting in a gym by yourself with a high school basketball coach typically, or a college coach, right? Or you're playing a lot of pickup and you're doing these drills that like, you know, you don't have, you didn't have the access to go and see and, and look at, guys across the world and some of the training techniques and the things available to them and just the guys that now the experts that these players have that they've hired that work with them they side by side all summer to add to their game so i'm very envious of that and as a result we have more highly skilled basketball players right now than we have ever had before now that doesn't necessarily mean on a given night or in a given game that that means what you're watching is necessarily better all the time. Just because the skill level's better individually, that doesn't necessarily mean the quality of basketball is as good. And I'm not saying it never is, but I'm saying that doesn't automatically mean that. You sit down and watch a random game on a Tuesday night, it doesn't mean what you're watching is better just because there's more skilled guys on these rosters. It's about style of play as well. It's about mentality. Um, So the combination of the two – is what you know, I kind of hold on to. Some of the things from the past and certainly the talent level off the charts like we've never seen it before, particularly the number of bigs and the versatility in their games. Never seen that before in the history of the league, and it's so fascinating to watch some of these guys with you know seven foot plus and what they're able to do in a basketball court. You have to just sit back in awe of that. And then hopefully on certain nights, Adam, that style is there that you would love and admire, right? The quality of shot, the ball movement the sharing all of those things when they're there, when you combine it with the skill level,
1: now you're watching something that's unprecedented for the NBA. Well, it all comes back to the first thing you said, which is that tension between the individual brilliance that basketball clearly is, is unique in that the individual makes such a huge impact, but they don't make the whole impact. And the thing you're talking about with, connectedness and and how a team plays together and how the individual fits into a whole those are lessons that are the same today as they were a hundred years ago in the early <laughs> formation of, of the game itself and those are things that yeah i, I agree i think there's large parts of that that have been lost with you know the player movement in the new era and just the different ways things work now um and it's the struggle of every team to try to improve throughout the course of 82 games to prepare themselves for the playoffs not as individuals but But collectively, that makes the game so fascinating. And those are the types of things we're going to be looking at and examining throughout the uh, course of this podcast. Like I said, four times a week, we're gonna be coming to you. There's gonna be live elements too. You're gonna wanna get in early on this show because you know how it is. There's always the first wave of listeners and interactive uh, audience members who are sending in questions and participating. And you're gonna wanna be one of those people that are sending in your questions and and doing all those types of things. Why don't we, Tim, why don't we hit our first break? We, uh, the basketball gods blessed us because it's (laughs) our first show. And last night they gave us a game that was absolutely absurd. The Phoenix Suns blow a 20-point lead, or should I say that the San Antonio Spurs come back from 20? We'll talk about that on the other side and what went wrong for Phoenix for them to drop that game. We'll be right back with more All-NBA Show. NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at even bigger wins. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot and making your payday even sweeter. Basketball's more fun when you're in on the action. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code ALLNBA. Look at that. We've got our own promo code. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code ALL NBA. The crown is yours. You have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800GAMBLER.net. In New York, call 877-8HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY, that's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensed partner Gold Nugget Lake Charles. 21 or older age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See slash basketball terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms and responsible gaming resources. All right, back here, segment two of the All-City All-NBA show. Do us a favor. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the like button. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a show. This is the only show that's going to be on this uh, podcast feed, so it's it's only going to be what you're looking for. And then, of course, download the podcast onto your uh, favorite podcast app, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcast, or Overcast, or wherever you get them. They should all be up there by the end of the day. Leave us a five-star rating and review if you're enjoying the show. All right, Legs, last night, As I was preparing for the show, I see that the Phoenix Suns are up by 20 points. And I'm thinking, you know what? I can work on some other things for this show now because I've seen what I need to see. And I get a text message from somebody saying, what the heck happened? So I'm going to ask you, what the heck happened in that game for the Phoenix Suns to collapse and blow a 20-point third-quarter lead? All
0: right. I love the way you set this up, first of all, because let's go full disclosure here. I have a two-year-old. I was trick-or-treating. Right. Yeah. So we're we're you know, we're 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 enjoying Halloween. I know I got the game dvr and I'm gonna get back, get him to bed. You know, I'm gonna probably eat most of the candy he collected and and I'm gonna start watching this game. I start watching the game. I get to mid third quarter, yeah. and just like you, I'm thinking like, okay, well, that's a wrap. And yeah. kind of, you know, saw some things that were very interesting to me to that point. Paused it. Did some other things, worked on some other stuff, came back. And I was thinking, like, by this point, I had not looked at the score. The game was over. And I went back and I just was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and watch I had nothing else to do. I'm just laying there. And I'm like, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and watch the rest of this. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Now, you asked the question. It's a broad, encompassing question. What happened? Yeah. So San Antonio was going to get a lot of credit for this zone defense that they threw at Phoenix, okay, for a large portion of the second half. And I'm going to tell you this right now. Any you see a zone defense in the NBA have effect, it is always about the offense. I'm going to tell you right now. And look, I know some teams play it with more success than others. The Heat have gotten yeah, a lot do of good. Yeah. He'd play a ton of it. You saw a lot of it last night out of Greg Popovich San Antonio Spurs. They didn't have a choice, right? They They couldn't right. guard them. Uh, so they decided to to go to this sort of a one-two-two two hybrid zone. Looks very much like Miami zone. Um, the way that they were – look, don't get me wrong. They were playing with a lot of energy. It takes yep. that to play a zone. You've got to have a lot of communication because there's a lot of ambiguity when you play zone defense, right? So you've got to talk it out on gaps and rotations and box outs, all of that stuff. But it is always about an offense – allowing you to do it because the caliber of talent across the league offensively should never be susceptible to being guarded by his own defense. And so I thought Phoenix got a little bit stagnant. They didn't necessarily attack the the two areas of the floor. You have to, which was it is basically between the foul line and top of the key. The ball has to get there and the short baseline halfway between the block and the corner on the deep baseline. Those are the two most important places the ball needs to get to against the zone because of the way that you forced guys to have to turn their head and make them unaware now of cutters and shooters. They didn't really do that. And then they missed a couple of naked looks where we're having a different conversation today. Grayson Allen missed a huge one from the right corner and Watanabe missed one from the left corner that if he makes that shot inside of a minute left, the Suns win the game two wide-open naked looks from two great three-point shooters. So the Spurs will get a lot of credit for it, but I thought it was more about Phoenix. You you get to a point where you watch a team sometimes, Adam, it looks like they're waiting for the clock to sort of run
1: out. Exactly what was happening last night. There's no question that's exactly what was going on. And I thought – so the other thing a zone does, because you're right, but the other thing a zone does is it disrupts the rhythm. It forces you to change up. If you have a rhythm, and and Phoenix had a rhythm going for two and a half quarters of this game – they had a rhythm going of, okay, everything's comfortable. The zone comes out, you have to change. You have to say, okay, we need to find a new rhythm. And I think what you're hinting at is that it's not a particularly hard rhythm. It's easy to know, here are the steps to go to beat it. But Phoenix got disrupted, and I think like you, they kind of thought the game was over, that they were right waiting for the clock to go out. There was a couple turnovers late in the game that were kind of like, ah, it doesn't matter. It's the... And the rhythm was gone, and then those shots... I mean, we've seen it a million times. You lose a rhythm a little too far. And now, the easy shots, they don't, they start to not fall. Well,
0: listen, as a, as a, you know, role playing three point shooter in my career, and that's with Grayson and Allen and Watanabe Yard, very similar All to right. that. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, you go through a stretch where you see a lead dissipate and guys aren't making shots. And now you as a shooter get, get one of those wide open looks, you know, with meaning. There's no doubt. Like, you're like, oh man, you feel that a little bit. Like, I got to make this shot you know, this is really important to stop this run. So they probably felt some of that. I thought the turnovers no doubt played a part. The one with Durant late, you know, Frank Vogel, very adamant after the game that he got fouled. And if you watched the replay, and I was having a very difficult time finding a really good replay of that, like Mm. a, like a close up to see what he's talking about is when Durant caught that ball late, now we're talking inside of 10 seconds, they get the ball in, they're trying to get it to him, obviously thinking San Antonio's going to take the quick foul, put him at the line, pretty much ice the game. Well, Durant gets trapped and spins, and right when he spins, he gets, no doubt, hit across the forearm. Right. But the ball didn't move at all, and it didn't look like he had any issue maintaining control, and he actually then pulled the ball away from the defense right at that time. So as an official, I can just tell you, if 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 he saw the ball wobble a little bit, whoever that fisher was on the sideline, if they saw that movement, they're probably going to go and make the call. But right. he he played so strongly through the initial contact. The second part of that was an absolutely clean rip. Right. They ripped it out of right. his hands. It's almost like Kevin Durant, as great as he is, wasn't prepared for them to not take a quick foul. where they usually grab a guy by the stomach yep. or chest, right, and you just give it up?
1: Right. He was
0: anticipating that. Didn't get it to the Spurs credit. They played through it. They got the rip. They got the bucket. They get the win. And now Durant misses the fadeaway shot at the buzzer and then and walks off the court with his head down, really in a, in, a, in a stunned moment of, I can't believe what just happened over the last like 18 minutes of this
1: game. I think a lot of this rests on the shoulders of Kevin Durant because all the things you said are absolutely true. I think you're right that he was on his heels all the way until the final second of this game. And if you go one play before that, the Spurs are down three. They get a jump shot. It misses. Kevin Durant's guarding Wembenyama. He just turns around and just looks. He doesn't walk towards the basket. He doesn't walk towards Wembenyama. He just turns around and looks. And Wembenyama walks right to the basket, puts a putback in uncontested. Even if, like, look, that's a maybe that play happens either way. Maybe it doesn't. But it was clearly a the effort level was a thing of this game's over. It's it, we got it already. They put it back and it's one and you think maybe that'll be the wake up call. And I thought Kevin Durant takes the inbound pass with the same energy of well, it's over now. They're just going to foul and you allow it to become this thing where official has to make a difficult read. So I thought from the zone attacking the zone and him obviously being the the guy everybody's looking to, to the final rebound, to the final turnover, he, more than anyone, was on his heels in moments where just a little bit of focus would have put the game away. Yeah,
0: there's no doubt. And, and one of the things that, that we're going to continually do here, because this is a big part of like, what, what I am as an analyst and what I'm seeing, huge believer in every detail matters. So you're going to yeah. hear me talk about things like you know angle of an entry pass and yeah. timing of a ball reversal. And chipping a guy when he has a free run at an offensive rebound. You don't necessarily have to turn, you know, and do a defensive box out drill right there if you're Kevin Durant. All you have to do is get a tiny piece of Wembenyama on the play you're talking about, which right. is the tip in tip dunk that was right before this final game sequence. All you have to do is get a tiny piece of him to disrupt his straight line run at the rim. Right. It missed it that then he missed times everything associated with the putback. And again, it's those little things matter in close games late with winning and losing. So I agree. I think Phoenix got very comfortable. Look, Grayson and Allen and Eric Gordon were out of their minds in the first half. They yeah. shot them yeah. out at for a game for the game. They shot 18 for 39 from the three. That's a game you typically win. Um, They they out-rebounded them. 19 turnovers to 12. That's a big difference, and some of the ones that we're talking about mattered late. And then a final thing, you know, they got the line only 15 times. Durant shot two free throws Mm. in the game. Very low number for him. So at some point, I think the shots were coming easy to the Suns, and they kind of fell in love with those perimeter jump shots. And and when you do that, invariably you'll have a stretch where you string together four, five, six misses – and it allows a team to take it from 20 to a 12 point deficit where now they think, all right, we have a chance now. Like we, we actually are in the game. Now let's see what happens over the course of the last eight to 10 minutes. If if Phoenix gets a few free throws during that stretch too, right. It lets them set up their defense. It puts points on the board. Now all of a sudden, if that lead stays, you know, in that 16, 18 range, right. that's what San Antonio is going to feel differently about their chances with six, seven minutes to go. So it's all connected. And at the end of the day, I love what Popovich said after the game, this team just lost by 40 points to the Clippers. The fact that they fell down 20 in this game and they continue to play, yeah. very young core roster, yeah. they don't know any better, right? They're just going to go play because they love playing basketball. And when you do that, some nights, some good things can happen to you and you can turn it around. And that's basically what they did last night. And look, let's, let's also, we haven't mentioned this yet, no Booker, no Beal. So let's be clear about what this was for the Phoenix Suns because they don't have
1: much offense generation outside of Durant if those guys aren't playing. Well, I think even more so than offense generation, last night there was a real lack of point guard play. And Phoenix has ball handlers, even with Beal and, and Booker, they have ball handlers. But point guarding is a little bit of a different thing. And I think with the zone problem in particular, with the protecting the basketball in the fourth quarter in particular, it really stood out to me. That Kevin Durant was the guy that everybody kept going to with the ball. And Kevin Durant's a great player, but I don't know that I would call him a point guard or has those types of point guarding skills. And another thing that I thought San Antonio did late was something that Kevin Durant has struggled with in each of the last two postseasons, which is sending two players to trap him well, you know, at the logo, sending him up high. And when you have a team that's all looking to Kevin Durant to do things, he, whether he'd get rid of the ball or whether he would turn it over, it just looked like Phoenix didn't have that presence in there to say, here's how we settle ourselves down in these moments. That's a great point. And, and
0: look, I, you know to your point, late, and it might have been the possession. They ended up getting a good shot. Watsonabe, I think it might have been the possession. He missed a corner three. The start of that possession, Grayson Allen's handling the basketball. Right, He comes up, he gets over half court, has it poked away. So he has to go run it down, almost a backcourt violation. Kind of picks it right, up. Yeah, do barely. It. He throws it cross court to a Kogi, who who basically fumbles it, has to save it from going into the backcourt himself. You know, finally they get the ball. I think in the hands of Durant, but like they'd already eaten up half the shot clock. Nothing mm-hmm. close to resembling a like a flow and ball security, and that's where that comes into play. If you just look at who they were playing last night, McOggy, Nurkic, Eric Gordon is a straight line dribble drive guy. Grayson Allen also either straight line dribble drive or you're a, a catch-and-shoot guy. Good uh, Goodwin, Nasir Little, Watanabe, none of these guys are people that are going to be able to handle the ball against pressure, change hands, get escape traffic, escape a double team, get it to a better place to deliver the basketball where now you operate three on two, two on right, one on the right. side, right, and get something really good when you have to have it. That's obviously where Bradley Beal and Devin Booker come in are two highly accomplished guys that can either create either hand, pull up a mid range, shoot a three, get to the rim or make a play for somebody. So you saw it. It was all on Durant's plate, all in his lap. And when that lead starts to disappear, you know, he can't just think, well, I'm just going to go get buckets every time. Well, that's easier said than done because they don't even have anybody else on the floor that can even get the ball to the right places. So you have a highly efficient possession. So, A lot of things went wrong for Phoenix over the last 18 minutes of the game. A lot of things went right for San Antonio. And still, despite all of that, if they make a couple of threes in the last four or five minutes of the game, it's a totally different momentum feel in the game. And I think they probably win. So, yeah, it's frustrating. You hate coughing up a lead like that, particularly to a young team that's going to be in a lottery like San Antonio. And at home – but it happens. It happens in this league if you don't play for 48 minutes. And I think Santa, uh Phoenix learned a lesson about that last night.
1: And that's the whole thing is Phoenix drops to two and two. And we mentioned, you know, Bradley Bill, Devin Booker have been out. Uh, Booker said on the broadcast last night, it sounds like, you know, he's close to coming back. He said pretty soon, but pretty soon, we all know there's, he said there's still some benchmarks I haven't cleared. So it sounds like maybe he'll be out for a little bit longer here. Um, but nonetheless, Phoenix has aspirations for being an upper seed this year, you know, for making a deep run and these games early. Yes, it's a long season, but that's a home loss to a team that's projected to be a bottom five Western conference team. So these things can add up. Um, Let me ask you this. This is the second time Phoenix has blown a 20 point lead this year. They did it on opening night. Now they were managed to pull that out, but should we read in, in anything to this? And maybe is it connected at all in your opinion to the lack of true point guard play?
0: Well, here's the thing. They have not played with a complete team yet. And so this is mm-hmm. one of those situations where, because even opening night, they didn't have Beal. This is one of those situations where you don't have a choice but to give this these guys a body of work together, right? So mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing where I think you, you look at where they are at Christmas, because I, I agree with you, just based on based on roster construction, this is a team for me that is on the very short list of teams that you would expect to win a championship. Milwaukee, Boston, Denver, and Phoenix, to me, are the four teams. Then there's going to be a second tier of teams where you can start including people like the Lakers, I think. Maybe the Warriors you'd want to include in that. Maybe the Clippers, right, if they if they have everybody healthy all year. So there's, a net, there's another tier. And like some of those teams, hey, maybe they can play their way into that. But for me, going right. in, those four teams, I'm confident one of those four is gonna host a parade in June. And Phoenix is on that list, but they also have work to do to learn about timing, to learn about how they're going to close games when you have three guys that have closed games for their teams their entire career. Well, now it's a little bit of a different feel. And unfortunately for them, they haven't had it yet. They played without Beal initially, they played without Booker and Beal, Last night, a lot is going to be made about their lack of a true point guard and somebody to put the ball in their hip and organize people when you have to have it because all three of these guys are raw scorers. But to what extent that affects them and yeah. is this offensive explosion they're going to put on most nights not enough to overcome it? We don't know yet, Adam. That's going to take that's going to take, you know, a couple months to before you really get an idea of what this looks
1: like. On the other side, I do want to give some credit to San Antonio here. And, and I thought that, uh, Vassell played all 12 minutes of the fourth quarter. He hit some really tough shots, some very impressive ones. Kelton Johnson obviously made the big play. He finished with 27 points, four assists, two steals. Um, and then Trey Jones, I thought, gave him good minutes down the stretch, um, you know, and, and helped control some things down there. Is, is there any notes you have on San Antonio before we kind of move on to the next game?
0: No, I think that there are some guys on that team that pro- people probably haven't seen much of. I mean, everybody knows about the hype right. surrounding Victor Wem and Yama, but, you know, a lot of people still, even though, you know, Kelton Johnson's got some Team USA, you know, on his right. resume. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people would be able to pick out Kelden Johnson right now if they saw him on the street. Right, Watch more of him. Vassal is a guy that's, he's very, very impressive. A lot of confidence. And he shot a step back three late in that late. game last night where he literally probably covered six to eight feet with a sideways sort of broad jump to us to get away from the defender, get behind the line, land on balance, rise up. It was they actually used the, the uh, comparison to Lillard on the broadcast. I think mm. it was Reggie Miller. I thought that was a great comparison because the great ones like that's how much separation you get and you still end up on balance so he he did that last night incredibly impressive at an important time in the game and then of course you know Wembyama who is is going to have, like last night he kept playing and he had 18 8 I think he had four blocks so his stat line is pretty impressive for a rookie right right most of what he's doing right now is strictly based on height
1: yeah okay. yeah totally he, he,
0: Right, he, he's he's spending a lot of time lot at the three hype. point line and he's shooting over guys because he's so right. long. Some of the stuff he got last night, the tip dunk we're talking about, the three point play it was awkward, he threw it behind his head, kind of was because he's you know, seven four he's right at the rim and he got it to go. The the his game is gonna be such an evolution because of his frame, because of how unique you know he plays, guys getting into him and kind of forcing him off his spots, playing through contact, all of that stuff. He's going to just get better and better and better. But right now, you're not seeing them run a ton for him. He sort of drifts and floats a lot offensively. He's going to have some nights where he looks like, oh, my goodness, the league is in trouble. Look at this guy. There's going to be other nights he's going to look like a young kid that is in over his head a little bit. And that's what Wembenyama is going to be right now. But what I do like about them, they're very fun. They're very entertaining. And Greg Popovich has completely changed his approach because he's, he's letting these guys go, and he's just letting them play and play through mistakes and play through bad shots and pumping the brakes when he has to. Called a timeout last night down 4 nothing, you know, send a message. But for the most part, it's fun to watch Pop at this stage of his career with these young players sort of let them
1: go and let them grow and, and, and play through some of these things they're going to see. All right, let's move on to our next one. That's our deep dive game. You know, every every show, I think we're going to have one or two games we go a little deeper on than others. There were two more games in the association last night. The Knicks picked up a win in Cleveland, 109-91. to um, This game looked familiar to me, Legs. You had a couple different things going. Donovan Mitchell, I thought, had a very good first half. In the second half, they started to play up on him a little bit more, forced the ball out of his hands, and forced the bigs to make plays on the short roll. And I did not think the Cleveland bigs did a very good job on that. On the other end of the floor... You saw really good games from Isaiah Hartenstein and from Mitchell Robinson. So this was another game that has echoed previous seasons, in my opinion, where the interior, the front court players for New York have really dominated this matchup. They dominated it last night and, uh, you know, took control of this game early and never looked back. Yeah, they 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 played
0: tough. They didn't necessarily play a great game offensively. And that's kind of how the Knicks play. Like, you, you know, you, there's a lot of nights when you watch Randall and Barrett in particular and they're not going to have you know super efficient nights some nights, but they are able to get to their spots. They're big, they're physical, they're strong. They can win one-on-one matchups to get something no. quality for themselves where if it, even if it doesn't go in, the pressure they've put on defenses with their ability to get into gaps and bring extra guys, it creates an open three or an offensive rebound for somebody. So they didn't play like a beautiful game, no. but they were tougher than Cleveland, and I think – Just like I said about Phoenix, very difficult to judge without Beal and Booker. You know, Darius Garland not being out there because you look at the Cleveland roster and the only guy that really could go get his own was Mitchell. Right. When you put Garland on the court, man, that's a completely different look. And he wasn't there last night. And the Knicks kind of sensed it, you know, they, and quickly played with a lot of confidence in the second half of that game too. He, he, You know, he felt like he was in control. He could go where he wanted to go against them. So the Knicks just had more guys that could do more things with the basketball. And they sensed that. And it got into Mitchell a little bit and there wasn't really anybody there to answer the call for the Cavs. What you hope for to get some help from, you know, they got a lot of three point shooters on this team, maybe even too many on the court sometimes. Yeah. They were 10 for 38 from the three. So you want to help, you want to help Donovan Mitchell. That's how you do it to get guys off of him and not be in that extra gap knocked down some threes and they just weren't really able to do it. Struess has been great to start the year. He was one for seven. Um, Yeah. They're counting on him. Niang was three for nine. So you don't get that impact from the role
1: players that you needed. If you're the Cavaliers a hundred percent agree. And I think those are all reasonable, um, you know, reasons for why the Cavs dropped this game, but they dropped it by 18 points. And I think the one thing I know is on your most interesting players list. So I don't want to go too deep on it, but, Last night was a I, I don't want to say another, but it really was another underwhelming game for me for Evan Mobley. And I think as talented as he is, there are these archetypes of players that he seems to get bullied by. And I think last night that's how I would describe it. I think he got bullied a little bit by the by the front court players on New York and, you know, coming in now being a little bit more of a seasoned player, that concerns me. I love it because there's a there's
0: a list of guys around the league that i think you know have your attention going in because you know what makes the interesting storylines it's okay well if this guy can raise the bar to this extent this season it it means something different for their team right what right. in terms of what their ceiling is mobley's one of those guys for the calves they had a really good year last year they added mitchell he paired well with uh garland so now they they got young bigs, all right. You got Jared Allen, you got Mobley. You're thinking, okay, man, the defensive front line like that, and this kind of guard play, and now they add shooters. Like are they a team that could get into the mix? Because I think right now the third best team in the East is like uh, is like you know a debate. Yeah, we all know with Boston and Milwaukee the top two teams. That third team, like who wants to lay claim to that third rung on the ladder? I think it's open for debate. Cavs are clearly in that mix. Mobley is the guy we're looking at is that's going to determine if we view them in that vein. And look, he's had some good statistical nights to start the year, uh, certainly against Indiana in particular, 33 and 14. But when you look at the other three games, including last night, you know, three made field goals, he's had three games with five or less made field goals, the aggression and, you know, the inclusion. And I think for him, it's a mindset. Like what are you out here to do tonight? Are you out here to sort of drift around and, and be a nice player. You, you know, he's always going to have impact on the glass because he's long. He goes after him. He, he's going to he's going to be a pretty good rim protector. Is that what you're? Is that all though? Like, are you are you here tonight? Did you get in the car to leave your house, yeah. intent on going there and being the best player on the floor for stretches? That's what we need to see out of Evan Mobley. And look, no one's going to say it's a it's a finished book. He's 22 years old,
1: so, so, young. so he's still. got
0: so much talent. So this it, is a work in progress. But listen, when it doesn't happen. It matters to the Cavs on those nights when he's a little bit quieter and passive, maybe the physical matchup looks a little bit too much for him. And you go, I went six, eight games last night. He was in the the court, the entire entire time, six to eight minutes of watching. I didn't really remember he was in the game,
1: right? He's too
0: good for that. He's too good for that. He's too talented for that. And that's, I think the point that you're making, that's the challenge for Mobley. And that will be, I think the barometer for their team. Most of the year, I think a lot of those guys, we know what we're going to get. Mobley is still
1: like he, he can fluctuate from night to night. That's what we need to see. You mentioned the Pacers game. You know, I think the Pacers and Knicks in a lot of ways couldn't be more different. And, and that to me stands out. I mean, the Pacers play a very offensive oriented game, a very fast paced game. And, you know, to some extent, at least in the front court, there's going to be a lot of finesse there. But when you get, you know, into the mud, when you make it into a battle, You know, some guys do tend to shy away. And I think that's kind of what I see from Evan Mobley when I watch him. He's so talented. There's a lot there. But the more I cover this league legs, no player, no matter how talented, gets to superstardom the easy way. At some point, you have to go the hard way uh, to get to the next level. And I just see that for him. Let's move on, though. We got more games and and more things to talk about here. The Magic were in Los Angeles. They dropped 118-102 to the LA Clippers. I actually find the magic really interesting. They're one of my favorite teams. They've dropped a couple in a row now as they start out on this long uh, road trip to open up their season. Um, we'll get to the, to the magic. I know magic fans maybe listening in are thinking, hey, everybody always glosses over. I find them to be a very fascinating team, but they dropped the game last night in a third quarter run. They get outscored 41 to 21. But the real story here is the big trade finally happened. The trade, the, the, the least shocking trade in the history of the NBA finally went through and James Harden joins the team. Um, this has the potential to be a huge trade. It has the potential to be a, a, one of those trades that felt huge and didn't happen. Where do you where do you fall on this? What's kind of your initial reaction to seeing the move uh, finally go down? Here's how I view it. If you thought the Clippers were a contender, and I, and I think to do
0: that, The talent on the roster is there for for them to be in that conversation. Where the leap of faith comes, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George are going to be healthy all year. And more importantly, they're going to be healthy for a two-month playoff run playing every night. If you want to call them a contender, because it is a two-month playoff run if they're a contender. So that's the leap of faith you have to make. I'm not ready to go there yet based on recent history. I mean, I just got to see where is Kawhi Leonard in March, right? And my point is this. If you believed that that's going to happen and you're one of those people, and I'm certainly Clippers fans, but maybe there's some other people that think, yeah, no, hey, Kawhi, he looks pretty good this year coming in. He's going to be there, man. Paul George, Westbrook looked comfortable in his role. They're going to be there in the end. If you believed that based on Kawhi Leonard's health, I got news for you. They didn't need Harden. They didn't need Harden. It doesn't move the needle for me one bit. They Mm. were already on paper talented enough. The question is going to come down to Kawhi Leonard's health, period. Look. James Harden is going to a place that probably the only place that made sense to me for him to land. They finally got it done. I don't necessarily think the Sixers got back what they were hoping for all along, but I think they had to recalibrate what he's worth. And they ended up getting three mid-30s guys that are about 6'8 each with long arms that can defend and shoot an open three. And that kind of fits their team better. Because one thing I do know about James Harden, you cannot count on him if 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 it's pressure time. Right. So so how exactly does he move the needle for the Clippers? Maybe in the regular season because there's going to be stretches you can assume when George and Leonard aren't playing, and now you've got another elite offensive player in the regular season, I guess, if he can figure out how to play with Westbrook at this stage of their careers. Okay, I'll give you that. What does that have to do with the postseason? And if James Harden's on the floor and doesn't have the ball. Mm-hmm then what exactly is he doing?
1: Same course of Westbrook by the way. Both guys have the the talent to be good off-ball players, but both of them have never really, you know, maximized the the their skill sets to be great off-off-ball players. And at least Westbrook occasionally will when he was playing
0: with LeBron would weak-side slash right. you know, every now and then get into the to the, to the opening in the lane when LeBron's holding the ball and the whole defense is shifted over there, he'd see a weak-side cut. I mean, go back to James Harden's best even in Houston, okay? When, when James Harden went, and no matter who he was paired with, when he was by himself or when he was eventually paired with Chris Paul, Westbrook, whoever, if Harden wasn't the initial set on, which was most of the time where he's running a high ball screen or an ISO, just take a look at those possessions. He stood out by the logo. He's
1: yeah. right? just kind of yeah. chilling out. Like, uh, you know not what? even in I'm shooting position, out. like outside yeah. of shooting position.
0: Right. And he's not even, and he wouldn't even catch and shoot. which would have been the play like the play is okay they they just ran action on the weak side everybody rotated over here comes the swing out well if that's a catch and shoot guy he knows that that has to be taken at that time well he's going to catch it and put it back down on the floor anyway because that's he has to get into a rhythm for his shooting so he's not going to play off the ball and if he has the ball in a pressure moment you cannot expect him to be operating in a place of confidence and aggression And efficiency, I mean, just look at the data. And I I did some numbers on this yesterday, Adam. He played 13 playoff games the last two years for the Sixers, okay? He had three games that stood out. Game four against Miami two years ago. Huge game. When they were down 2-0 in that series, they got it back to 2-2. It was game four in Philly, monster game. And then obviously game one and four against Boston last year, where he basically won those games practically single-handedly. Well, guess what? That's three out of 13. You know what his numbers were in the other 10? 14 Mm. points a game, 32% from the field, 22% from the three-point line. So it, it affects him. So my point is, if he's there and he doesn't have the ball, how's he helping you? And if he does have the ball, that's probably not the best place for it to be. So I'm just skeptical on his impact on winning in the postseason. And that hasn't changed for me and it hasn't changed my diagnosis for the Clippers of anything. It maybe makes me more skeptical because it's not like they're going to play this guy 15 minutes. He's going to play a ton of minutes. Right. And so so what does that look like with these other guys that I'd rather have the basketball when it matters,
1: assuming that they're even healthy? Well, I think so. Everybody always talks about the starting lineup, right? And I, I expect Russell Westbrook. There's a good chance he'll come off of the bench and, and, and be a guy. I think it's his best role. And I actually think Westbrook going against bench units, it could be, you could do a lot worse. That's a that's a really good attack. But here's my starting lineup is one thing. Closing lineup to me is the really interesting question. And you've got Harden, you've got Paul George, you've got Kawhi Leonard, you've got your big and Avita Zubots. Um, that last spot, Terrence Mann, Norman Powell, PJ Tucker, if you need the matchup, and then obviously Russell Westbrook. To me, the closing lineup when I put all of these pieces together, the closing lineup is the one I have the hardest time knowing. What is it going to be? Are you going to go to something different every night? Are guys, it, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously starting to think, third quarter, I better make an impression so I'm part of that lineup? The closing lineup, to me, is the thing that I look at, and I, none of it seems to add up perfectly for me. Oh, definitely not, because, look,
0: your best your best way to operate for these two teams is to put the ball in the hands of Kawhi Leonard or Paul George. Usually let them operate of some sort of ball screen. You know, For Kawhi, he's going to get into some mid-range area of the floor and either back you down with a power dribble and shoot over you or he's going to go to his mid-range pull-up. Paul George, a little craftier with the ball, more likely to to shoot a three if you go under a screen, but again, wants to put the ball on the floor and get into a rhythm and operate. And and clearly, those are the two guys you're going to run everything through. So where does that leave Westbrook and Harden in those moments? That's what we have to see. Zubac is a great complementary center for this because – He will screen dive
1: 42
0: consecutive times without touching the ball, and he'll do it just as hard on the 43rd time. He bangs the offensive glass. He finishes everything that he does touch. Great complimentary player. Now, they don't necessarily have a ton of shooting around these guys, but you're 100% right. And that, for me, is where the skepticism comes in. What is this going to look like at the end of a game, and in exactly what way does James Harden make them better and more efficient in those moments and when you look at the teams they're going to have to potentially get through in the west i've got it i've got to see it i kind of feel like i know how this is going to go but i'm going to give it some time yeah i am very i mean everybody i've been banging this drum for a couple years about harden um because it's mind-blowing when he goes into these dark places in playoff games right he doesn't ever flip the switch it's like you kind of know six minutes in oh here we go Right. One of those nights, he's just not going to be aggressive. And so how does that play into Paul George and Kawhi Leonard? But if there was a team that was going to take a chance, it was the Clippers. Veteran yeah, group. Of course. Veteran group. <laughs> guys that are going to miss a ton of games in the regular season. Let's get some yeah. more firepower. Veteran coach that will understand all of it. This is the spot for James Harden to be.
1: I just don't think it really necessarily pushes them closer to teams like Denver, Phoenix, and the Lakers. They're the poster child of the super team era really just in the uh, let's just get as many names as we can get I, the, the last thing I have for the Clippers here that I think is maybe underappreciated if I could throw them a bone not many teams in the Western Conference seem to gear up for Nikola Jokic and maybe it's because you can't but they did add a backup center you know they have Zubats now and, and Plumley, and you add a guy in PJ Tucker who to me represents a third body you could throw on Jokic can any of those guys guard him absolutely not but There's a surprising amount of teams in the West who don't have any option. It's better to have a bad option than no option. And they at least have three. I'm not trying to be coy, but they have three bad options. And at least they have bodies they can throw at them. And I know Michael Malone made a lot of the Rui adjustment in the playoffs last year. But as somebody who watches every Nikola Jokic game, putting a P.J. Tucker type player on him and using length to, to double You know, the P.J. Tucker, an undersized big, gets away with more contact. It's just natural basketball. You get away with more contact inside if you're the undersized guy. And I look at that and I go, I still think Nikola Jokic controls that series if he's in it. I still think he does what he wants. But at least they have 18 fouls and three bodies to throw at him to at least try to make him work for it. I hear that. That's a fair point. But I'll just say this. The
0: problem with that is you're you're right in terms of his direct back you down post-up game right and having guys on him to guard you know to at least right. contend with him problem is he could go six straight minutes not even think about shooting the ball and be the best yeah. player on the floor yeah. that is the problem that teams have against him now they they've got maybe more bodies to do it but the brilliance of, of Jokic is that nothing he does lacks purpose right. there's no wasted decision making no wasted effort no wasted motion he takes the shortest route to success, whether as a scorer or a passer, and it doesn't matter who you throw at him. He is going to beat you because of his ability to think constantly, multiple steps ahead of every sing- yeah. single thing he's seeing defensively. So, yeah. I hear you. They've got bodies, <laughs> but give him a little that,
1: credit. You know, I'm trying, trying to, to create.
0: <laughs> it's trying to create maybe an argument
1: yeah. uh, that's not there to make things interesting for the Clippers. Fair, fair enough. Uh, let's wrap up our first show here, Legs, with some true or false, all right? True or false. There is a market inefficiency for drafting quote-unquote old players. And I'm when I say old, I mean uh, the, the ripe age of 21 years old, 22. In the draft legs, everybody's trying to find the next 18, 19-year-old guy with this tremendous upside. But I look around and I go, half of these guys get traded in their second or third year anyway. I mean, everybody... It's funny when you look back at a draft from three years ago and realize half the lottery isn't even on the team that drafted them anymore. And then on top of that, I think that we are in an era where smart is really valuable, smart, the ability to read the court. And there's not that there's there's I don't think there's a ton of smart players, but when you do get a collection of players on a team that are smart, it unlocks new opportunities. And it's so hard if guys don't have a foundation, a a several year college foundation under them. To become smart players, so I think there's a market inefficiency of older players in the draft. I would agree. I would agree, and I think what what happens is front offices
0: are obsessed, as they you probably should be. These guys' jobs are on the line, especially when you talk about top ten, top fifteen picks with ceiling, right? So they they'll see a guy that's that's nineteen, in some cases maybe yeah. eighteen, and they're they're projecting what could this guy be at 22? And if it hits, like this is this is what we have in our hands. They see a kid that might be 20, 21, 22 years old, and front offices think this guy's a lot closer to his ceiling now, and that's not good enough for where we're picking. So it's all about what you think they're going to be when they're that age. The problem is some of these teams paint themselves into a corner because now they're making decisions on players in terms of that next deal. When they are still very unfinished, yeah. they've got a, They've got a very um, uneven body of work to that point. It's very inconsistent. Their bodies haven't developed. They haven't really hit their stride yet. And now, boom, here they go. You got to make this, this financial commitment in a lot of cases without knowing it. At least when you have somebody that's 21 years old and you look at them and go, okay, they're, maybe the ceiling's not as great. But man, oh man, do we need this? And he's doing it consistently every night. And this particular thing that that player does is something that fits our team better. Those top 10 picks, they're looking for the guy that's transformational because they do a little bit of everything well. And they right. hope eventually those guys turn into all-stars and all-league players. And I think that's why a lot of those older players get overlooked.
1: But it's also, you you said something in there, which is you have a skill set and it's so valuable. But how you unlock that skill set fully is by reading the court, by understanding how all the pieces come together. So, hey, here's where this skill is maximized. And I think that's the part that we talked earlier on about the tension between individual brilliance and team success. It used to be the offseason you work on your individual game and in the regular season, or in the season, at whatever level you're at, you're going to be working on the team concepts. I think in the NBA, there's just so little time to get the team concepts really hammered into you You have to come into the league with some understanding of how those things work, where you fit in space with all these other guys. And if you don't get that early on in your career at the college level or wherever it is that you're coming in from, I think it's very hard. And I'm just seeing a lot of players with a lot of talent never fully understand how to unlock that talent. And I'm wondering if that's becoming more of a market. I think it's always been a market inefficiency. But I think with the way the game is spread out with these new forms of players, these new types of players, that's becoming more and more impactful. So we agree on this one. We think both both of us think it's true. Let me ask you this one. The Denver Nuggets last year were an average defensive team. They were a transcendent offensive team, especially their starting unit. They won the title, and it was long-held a belief if you're not a top-10 defense, you can't win a championship. There's a lot of great offenses. Most of your top teams you look at now are offensive teams. We talked about uh, Phoenix. We talked about Denver. Are we in the offense wins championships era of the NBA where that's becoming maybe more important than it has been?
0: Well, I put it this way. I don't think you can be porous defensively. I don't think it can be an afterthought to you and win a championship. But there is no question. The way the league is set up, and a lot of it is you know, rules-based, it's you style-based, it's skill-level-based because of what players are working on. Um, and the the shots that they're looking for every time up the floor there is no question that having an elite level offense has become more important in winning a championship than it's ever been and you can't disregard the other end but i think you can win a championship being average defensively if you are elite offensively and that just doesn't that doesn't just mean putting up big numbers every night or you know like most of the league taking 35 43s it's about shot quality it's about It's about flow. It's about guys accepting roles. And I think one of the great things about the Denver Nuggets and and what they showed last year is they have incredible role definition and acceptance, and they have the right guy, I think, to let guys kind of stay in that lane and be themselves and value them for what they do well. The chemistry is there. The leadership at the top of their roster is there. The leadership on the bench is there. They've captured something that's special and we're going to try all year to convince ourselves that somebody else is going to knock them off and every time we try to convince ourselves of that yeah. i'm just going to watch them play another game and i'm going to go wait why am i why am i trying to convince myself of this when you look at what that end of the floor looks like for the denver nuggets so i think it's more of a premium on elite level offense than ever and if you can with a mediocre to poor defense you could still make a hell of a run maybe even win the whole thing when we didn't used to think that way, if you weren't like buttoned down on that end right. in a team that was like top five and efficiency and all that, like, how are you going to,
1: I don't know that that's necessarily the case anymore. I always look at it as there's two, you can almost look at this as like an X, Y axis, And on one axis there is how versatile are you? How many different things can you do? And then the other axis is how dominant are you at the things that you can do? And some teams win because they do one thing. It's such a high level. Nobody can stop it. Maybe they got a good path. Uh, but nobody stops them, And other teams can do so many things. I think the Miami Heat were this team. They defensively could do anything. And, and they were so versatile. And I think it's that access. You need to be up in the right quadrant. You need to be a little versatile. And you need to be dominant at something. And whether that's offense, defense, or some combination of both, I think you need them. But right now, there's some dynamic offenses in the NBA. And maybe it's just that the league has tilted that way with the rules, the shooting, the skill level that we talked about. Legs, this was a great first run absolutely good content we had good goodness too it always
0: helps listen it always helps when you have some interesting games the night before and I think most nights we're certainly going to get that but yeah this is phenomenal man going back and forth on this stuff and uh, hopefully
1: this is going to be what people can expect every single day they can expect it four times a week we're going to be back on Friday this week uh, recapping the Thursday slate games and we're going to be doing a deep dive on the Philadelphia 76ers we talked about the Clippers tonight I think the Sixers might be more interesting uh after this trade so we're going to talk about how you build around Embiid, tyrese maxi deep dive we have some great stuff coming up if you enjoyed this show do us a favor and hit the like button on this leave a comment and let us know what you liked about it and subscribe so you don't ever miss a, a an episode and then do us a favor and download this podcast wherever you get your podcast overcast spotify apple podcasts all of them have it up there legs i'm gonna see you on friday
0: Enjoyed it we'll talk then adam